folks, a programming note before I begin. The Perfect Wave, the podcast that you're listening to right now, is an audio documentary told in six major parts. To support this project and its production costs, I'll be trying something new, an app called Storyboard. Here's how it works. Using the app, our friends with iPhones can become power listeners of the show for $2.99 in exchange for four weeks of all access. And then you're going to unlock three bonus perks. First, you'll get all of the major episodes a full week early. You'll be the very first to hear them. In fact, if you're already a power listener, you may be hearing this episode a week early before the rest of the crowd. Second, I'll be making a minimum of two bonus episodes just for the power listeners to break the story down even further. And third, you're going to get a Fear the Wave sticker shipped to you as a token of appreciation, our brand new logo. Now, if you're not an iPhone user or this isn't for you, don't worry. All major episodes will be available on your podcast app of choice. But if you want to go even deeper, go to the App Store, search for Storyboard Podcasts, download the app, and become a power listener today. Now, with that out of the way, let's roll into the show. You're listening to a presentation of fearthewave.com. I'm your host, J.P. Gooderham, and I'm here to document one of the most shocking turnarounds in modern college football history, the 1998 undefeated Tulane Green Wave. Episode by episode and 20 years after it happened, we'll figure out what it took to turn a struggling football program into a true national powerhouse. There is no major spoiler. We know that this team will finish the 1998 season a perfect and record-breaking 12-0. But what did it take for Tulane to get there? This is their story, and this is the perfect wave. And this is Chapter 2, Camp Covington. And welcome back to The Perfect Wave, an audio documentary told in six major parts. If you're listening to this episode, but you haven't checked out Chapter 1 from Buddy to Bowden, my advice is to go back. You can find that episode on your favorite podcast app or on our app of choice, Storyboard Podcasts. At this point in the story, Tulane had broken a very long losing streak in their program history by posting a 7-4 record in their 1997 season, the first under coach Tommy Bowden's staff. You could say that the proof of concept was there, everything from an innovative offense, a promising quarterback, and a track record showing that they could win against some pretty good teams in Conference USA. But none of those things changed the fact that Tulane was denied a chance at a bowl game in 1997. That's where we're going to pick up the story today, because the Wave had something that hadn't been seen in Uptown in quite a while. Expectations. Sportscaster Ed Daniels, who was covering the team at the time, helped to break this down for me. But I remember being in the office a couple of days after the season and turning to my colleagues and saying, Tulane can go unbeaten next year. And I looked at the schedule, and you knew Louisville was going to be a very tough game at home. They had a really good team. You knew that would be a close game, and I think it came down to the last possession from what I can remember. But I honestly felt that based on what Tulane had returning, and that was Sean King and a very good senior defensive line, and really their system intact, that they had a chance to go unbeaten. And, you know, what was weird about it is nobody thought that was an outrageous statement. You know, for anybody to, any, for anybody to say Tulane has a chance to go unbeaten in a football season, I mean, they would be immediately drug tested. Immediately. People would think that, that, that there was something dramatically wrong with you mentally. But I felt that at the end of that season that they had a chance. Now, some folks may have had high expectations for the green wave, as Ed points out. But if Tulane was really serious about showing that, frankly, it wasn't the same old Tulane that people had grown used to, 
The road to glory would have to start across what feels like a never-ending bridge for anyone who hasn't spent much time in South Louisiana. And of course, what I'm talking about is the 29-mile causeway that would take the team across the lake to their fall camp of that year. Not only did the team have to deal with those expectations, but going up to Covington in August, the bigger challenge then, it was the heat. Brad Palazzo, a kicker and a senior at the time, explained what camp was like going into that season. Yeah, so a lot of people may not realize this, but we went to Camp Covington with Buddy Tevens first and that staff. Um, you know, Covington was not a Bowden staffed decision. You know, that we had been over there for numerous years, and it was awful. I mean, it was the worst thing you could imagine. <laughs> it was hot, hot, hot. It was nasty dorms that were sleeping in every night. I mean, I don't even think food was too good over there. But that was not necessarily a a Coach Bowden and staff, you know, new decision to take us across the lake. Now, what was different, JP, was just what I touched on a, a minute ago. It was how they conducted that camp over there. And primarily, their expectations of us was completely dramatically different. We were basically held, you know, if, if you didn't perform – well, you knew you weren't going to play, but in some cases, you may be off the team. Now, in 1998, Covington, it wasn't unfamiliar territory anymore to the Green Wave. They'd been there before. But that kind of physical intensity, it's not something that you get used to easily. I asked that question to Sean King, who at the time was a dynamic passer, entering camp as the team's star quarterback. I want to know what conditions he remembers from being across the lake, away from campus, training with his team before the fall of 1998. What do you remember about going to camp in, in Covington? It was hot. It's hot out there, man. It was real hot. Real hot, real isolated. It probably was my first time during my whole tenure at Tulane of being over in that area of Louisiana. It was across a long bridge. Felt like it took two days to get across that bridge. And when we finally got there, I was like, it's gonna be a long camp. You know, but it brought us closer. You know, I think it definitely created accountability on our team, you know, because guys kind of all we had was each other. When anywhere you could go, wasn't a whole lot you could do. It was just all football, and it ended up working. It ended up working. I think it gave us that final piece of thread we needed to to really bond together and play as one and play for each other. Like, you know, a lot of people say it in this cliche, but the thing I remember most about that team is how tight we were. Like, we hung out together. Offense hung out with defense. Defense hung out with offense. You hung out with your position guys. You hung out with other, you know, position groups. Like, we were close-knit group. Now, we did a lot of things together. And we got along really well. Now, let me take a step back for a second. When I was having interviews for this project, one word that came up constantly to describe this team was speed. And if you're going to build your identity around speed in college football, you need to build your practices around speed as well. So you take this team across the lake to a hot and humid environment and push them to the limit. The reality was the pressure was on. And Jerry Godfrey, an offensive lineman that season, broke this down for me. I I really think we won our games in practice. I don't think I've ever been in a faster practice. Um, I don't think we've ever been in a practice that was as physical as it all went down and it all had to happen, you know. I would tell you that after I had finished graduated and came back to work at my high school and, and talking to Coach Curtis, you know, he told me one time, he said, he asked Coach Bowles, he said, why do you do so much with those kids? Why do you 
driving so much? And his answer was, I want to see how bad they really want to win. And he said he noticed after the first spring or summer, the guys really wanted to win. And he noticed that no matter what he did, no one was quitting. No one was going to walk away. No one was going to find another way out of it. We were going to do whatever he needed us to do. And we did. And so the end result was everyone got what we wanted. And we were able to do some great things there. For Rich Rodriguez, he may have started to paint his masterpiece in 1997 in Uptown, but it was really 1998, in my opinion, when he had the chance for the first time to put on the finishing touches. That's because the team not only had a year of experience in this tough environment, but they now had a year of mastery of his system. And that meant that they were ready to rise to the pressure of a fall camp under Coach Bowden and Coach Rodriguez and all the conditions that might entail. Here's what Coach Rodriguez remembers about the toughness of that team. And, and not only that, it's like I've, I've told everybody, it's like, you know, you know, it can get pretty toasty there in the summer. And we had two, that was back when you had two days and we had it across the lake there and it was as hot as as humid as you could imagine. And we had guys, dozen guys getting IVs every day to replace their fluids and all that. And they continue to show up and work as hard as you can imagine. Like, you know, we didn't have, you know, we wasn't a real deep team. You didn't have a lot of walk-ons because it was a private school. So, you know, we didn't have, you know, we we're going to run four wide receiver sets. If you had eight receivers, that's just too deep. Well, we, we barely had eight. And those guys were taking so many reps. And I remember worrying about, man, these guys are run themselves ragged. But what they did was they ran themselves into great shape. <laughs> and uh, it showed, uh, I think, in the next, you know, in the, in the, in when we started playing the games in the Dome. As we've heard from being in this environment with high pressure, high intensity, and high heat, the team would come out bonded closer together and with more confidence in what they could do during the season. But I want to understand, what was the reality for players who were trying to earn their spot in the roster or trying to get playing time once they got into the season? To answer this question, I talked to Corey Soule, who was an offensive lineman and just a freshman at the time going into Camp Covington in 1998. Here's what he remembers about the experience. You get to camp, it's 1998. Uh, you're, of course, a freshman. What's your talk? Talk to me a little bit about what was Camp Covington like in '98? Oh, grueling. I mean, I, um, I was in camp in high school, but obviously college is a different animal. So it was a lot of learning on the fly, a lot of studying um, playbooks uh, when you have downtime, uh, trying to bond your teammates and trying to earn a spot on the team. Uh, one thing that happened was uh, Coach West, Coach Ron West, offensive line coach. Uh, before we got to camp, said uh, basically, you know, just play hard and be coachable. And I went to camp, remember what he said, and that's what was my mentality: to just whatever happens, just go full speed, one hundred percent, and so that whatever happens, happens. So I think this is a really important characteristic that I learned about this team from doing interviews. And what I mean is that the intensity, the grueling nature of camp, or whatever you want to call it, it didn't just come from the coaches or from the drills that they were doing. It was something that was really embedded in the foundation of this team that was laid out in 1997 when they went 7-4 and four and didn't reach a bowl game because it meant that this team had a lot left to prove. They knew that they had the opportunity to go out and compete against great teams, but this was a chance to validate the success that they had and build upon it for more. I talked to Jimmy Ordino, and he remembers what it was like to have a core that he felt could compete with the best in college football, not just in Conference USA. Well, I mean, you know, I think I think we knew that, uh, you know, particularly offensively, we could do 
we could do it really well. I mean, you know, we, we saw no reason. You know, I mean, if, if this wasn't the P5, non-P5, all that BS, I mean, none of that existed back then. I mean, yeah, you understood that there were certain conferences that were more prestigious than others, but um, it was far more of a level playing field, it percept, you know, from a perception standpoint. And and so, you know, we looked at it. We could look at our numbers against other teams' numbers and say, you know, we're just as good as any of these guys. I mean, you couldn't tell me that any quarterback in the country was better than Sean King going into that 98 season. So, you know, I, I felt like he was, we have the best or one of the very best guys in the country, a quarterback. Um, I, you know, if I was going to, if I was going to bet my life on, on a receiver making a play that, that a team needed to win a game, you know, I was going to bet on Juwan. Um, you know, and, and so when we had all that, you know, the only real question was defense because we had a lot of turnover on defense. We lost a lot of really good players, but I mean, shoot, you know, we, we had been going against those guys and they beat our butt as good as our offensive was, you know, those guys more than held their own you know, throughout scrimmages in the off season. I mean, maybe they're a little bit more unproven, uh, but we had very good players on that side of the ball, we felt. Um, so, you know, there was really that we looked at the schedule beforehand and, and didn't really think ahead, but there was nothing you, you saw in that schedule that said, you know, we can't run the table. You know, there, there's nothing preventing that from happening. We, I think we understood that and went about taking care of our business one week at a time. Now, let me take a step back here. The attitude that Jimmy is describing is nothing short of a paradigm shift for this two-lane green wave football program. For anyone who wasn't a two-lane fan back then or wasn't very familiar with the program, The reality here was that this team had suffered a multitude of losses, they had watched as losing seasons had piled up, and in just one year had attained a 7-4 record and had full confidence in the staff that they were working under. Even more importantly, they believed that they had the players on that team and an understanding of the system to not just go out and compete against anyone who was on that schedule. They thought they could win. And this, this was a huge change for the Green Wave going into a camp like they did in 1998. What I wanted to know, though, was for the coaches who were overseeing this progress, did they have the same level of confidence? To figure that out, I checked in with Coach Tommy Bowden to get his thoughts going into that year. Now, stick with me here. The audio is a little challenging since I caught Coach while he was on the road. But Tommy Bowden remembers thinking the team really did have a chance just not to win a boatload of games. He thought that they could run the table. I said, you know, if we can beat Southern Miss, they're the cream of the crop. We've got the best players, Jeff Bauer, Rubens, a really successful coach. If we can beat them, I think we can run the table. And uh, so all my focus, though I didn't, I didn't say anything publicly, obviously, uh, but that was my, my, my mindset going in. So I talked to Coach Rich Rodriguez about a question that I had. If the team had this level of confidence, what did the staff have the ability to do to really build on top of it? When Rich Rod answered that question, what he mentioned was that in 1997, it was all about installing the fundamentals, getting the team ramped up in the culture and understanding what they were trying to do. But by the time 1998 came around, it enabled the staff, including Rich Rod, to work on perfecting the system, to take the team to a height that they had never been at before. So 97, you faced a pretty tall task, right? You're installing a new system. You're trying to build a new culture. You're, you're developing players for the first time with this team. 98, though, you know, you, you guys produced the first winning season for Tulane in 16 years. I think a lot of people forget about that. And the 98 story is, is how important 97 was in teeing that up. So let's fast forward for a second. You guys get to Camp Covington. It's hot. You know, you got everyone out of New Orleans. 
what was your what was your now instead of focusing on installing the system what was the the focus for that camp what was success for you in getting the team ready for the season there's always been a it seemed like everywhere and that's probably typical of most new staff there's usually a big leap from year one to year two um, but you want there's some be some positive things in year one you know that which helps that year two leap so to speak and and so we felt that coming okay we had a lot of guys coming back and you could just see they were so com- more comfortable with the with you know the system with the play calling the tempo and and you could go into finer details on more things. You didn't have to coach as much on effort, and you didn't have to coach as much on on what the plays were. They just everything was faster and crisper. And so we felt that in Covington. I thought, oh, you know, you know, we're you know we're making good decisions. The guys understand what we're doing, and so we just instead of adding stuff, we just tried to be uh, better at what we did in all three phases. I thought, and from from the year before. And again, Tommy set the culture, the players were hungry to buy in and, you know, wanted to prove themselves. You never know if you're going to go undefeated. I mean, you got to have a few breaks and get a little luck along the way, but you could sense it in that camp that, you know, there was a, uh, an extra sense of urgency, I guess you could say, particularly from the seniors in that, on that team to do something special. Now take a step back with me for a second. If you think about any program that can turn it around, that can rapidly change the culture of their school and build a football program that does something that they hadn't done before, I think just about anyone as an outside observer or as a football fan could guess that that team would have to work really, really hard to make that happen. And that's certainly true of the 1998 Tulane Green Wave. I heard numerous stories from talking to players and coaches about the intensity of that camp, of dealing with the pressure of the expectations, and most importantly, being accountable to the members of that team to continue progressing toward their goal. That stuff's all true. But while doing those interviews, you also hear some interesting stories that you wouldn't expect about how the team was getting ready for the season. One that I particularly like came from Coach Tommy Bowden. What you have to remember is, in 1998, despite that 7-4 and season, Tulane was not the kind of team that people in the national college football viewing public would expect to have much success. They were a team that anyone could and would write off. Coach Bowden wanted to change that, and he did something innovative to try and change the discussion around Tulane as they went into a season where he had high expectations. You know, we've got to start trying to get us publicity matched. We've got a pretty good team, got a pretty good offense. We're doing some th- pretty good quarterback. We're doing some things that are unusual. So I called... Lee Corso, and I said, he's a Florida State guy. I knew him just a little bit. He's fresh my father. I said, listen, coach, I think we can have a pretty good team. I said, we get fast. So the best we can go beat it. I think there's any chance I can get fried. I got a private plane. Can I come get you? Don't bring you to average preaching. Just, let, just watch us. That's all you have to do and see what you think and look at what we're doing. And he said, nah, he said, I really don't think I can. I think that might prejudice some of my opinions and thoughts if I do that. But, uh, you know, I don't be able to do it. But uh, during the preseason, on one of his shows, this was a good way to start the season, they asked him about his sleeper team, his surprise team. He said, my sleeper team, my surprise team is Tulane. Watch out. I'm picking Tulane to possibly go undefeated. And, uh... So he picked us. Even though the phone call didn't get him down there, he said something positive, and sure enough, we did. And of course, made him look like a genius. Thanks for sticking with me there, because I know Coach Bowden's audio was a little bit challenging as I caught him while he was driving. But what he points out is that 
He wanted people to not just see what Tulane was doing, but understand how much progress was being made and to control the conversation around the development of that team. And while the outside college football world, to be fair, didn't seem to fully pick up on this message quite yet, for the guys in the locker room, they really did believe that they could do it. I heard this when I talked to Jeff Curtis, who was a backup quarterback on the team that year, going into his senior season, about how he saw the expectations playing out. No, I think it was definitely us against the world. There's no doubt. Um, I think we had a ton of confidence. I think that I, I'm, I can't sit here and tell you that all the team members um, thought or knew that we were going to go 12-0, and but thinking back to it, I really had a good feeling that we could run the table. If we could get past um, the first four or five games, um, you know, obviously Southern Miss was a huge game for us. They were kind of the top dogs in the conference at the time and how the, how the schedule kind of set up. Um, I, I, I totally thought that we could, we could go undefeated, but there were a lot of, a lot of people that, you know, if I said that, even though my family members did kind of chuckle or laugh and, um, you know, so you kind of had to be guarded because you didn't want to come off as being cocky, but, um, I, I really felt good about the season, but there was a lot of skepticism, obviously, from uh, people around the city, just because you know, they're not they're, they're they're used to something bad happening to Tulane. Um, something's gonna go wrong. Something's gonna mess up. You know, um, Ali Demarest is gonna break his collarbone again. You know, they kind of use a, a metaphor from the 1995 season. Um, you know, who knows? But there was always something that seemed to trip us up. Um, in the past, uh, that we just couldn't get past. And it just, it just felt different from an inside perspective from being on the team, as opposed to that skepticism of being on the outside. So by the last week of August, Tulane was gaining confidence as they prepared to break into their 1998 season. At this time, it was just a few days away. And it was in this moment that the team confronted its first major battle with adversity, And that set up a theme for the rest of the season about seeing challenges and rising to the occasion. This first one would come in losing a starting player who is expected to be a key part of this team. And Jerry Godfrey, an offensive lineman on that team, explains what played out. They came on the they came on the field. They came yeah, they came on the field the day before we were scheduled to fly and I don't know who our 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 opener was, might have been Cincinnati or we were scheduled to fly the next day. We were, and I, and I remember where we were. I, I had this weird brain. I, I remember stuff. We were at Tag Only Stadium. We were on the field, and one of the, I guess, compliance or uh, or somebody walked in the field and said, oh, "I'm sorry, the uh, Charles won't be able to play." And I remember Charles breaking down and crying because he knew he knew his team down, not only himself but his team. So, you know, at that point in time, yeah, we probably had a little bit of panic. You know, we probably had, you know, a little bit of this, oh, no, what are we going to do now? Because Charles and I had worked together all in the spring, all in fall camp. I, had, I mean, and Charles was a good player. And I was counting on Charles, and we all were. And for whatever reason, it just didn't work out for him, and he got himself in a little bit of trouble or, you know, just felt kind of short maybe in the classroom. But, you know, again, the other kids stepped up, and I don't think he, I don't think anybody could have played as well as that guy played as – he might be eight, maybe 18 years old, starting every game in college. And the thing is, left tackle actually wasn't the only position where Tulane didn't know who was going to be boarding the flight in the coming days to go to Cincinnati, Ohio for that opener. That's because there were a number of academic questions that loomed over players in the team, and that was a real challenge for Coach Bowden and his staff, according to the coach. 
They have to make decisions over who they're going to invest their time in and who's going to get the reps. And when they didn't know who was going to make the final team, that added a layer of complexity as they dealt with the opener and the planning for the regular season. Well, I remember being extremely upset uh, uh, with the administration. I think they helped out maybe five guys. I didn't know where they're going to be eligible. And what, what, what that hurts is in preparation. So do you give them any practice time? Well, if you give them practice time and they hold them back, uh, then, you know, then, then all of a sudden you've wasted their practice team. You should be preparing the second team. Well, if you prepare the second team, they're like they're, they're going to hold them out academically. Then all of a sudden you play them, they're not prepared mentally. So, man, I remember banning around that. And we, they might have eventually ruled everybody eligible but one, but that went up all during the preseason preparation. That's a tremendous distraction. The final ruling, as Jerry mentioned, was that the starting left tackle, an absolutely critical position in a successful offense, would not be playing football for the Green Wave that year. This, my friends, was a tremendous blow for the team and something that they weren't completely prepared for. The next man up would have to rise to the occasion, and that man was a freshman we spoke to earlier by the name of Corey Soule. So, Corey, I think one of the, the major parts of Camp Covington, I, I've talked to a bunch of guys already and people have called this out, a significant moment in the season was uh, the process of, of you becoming a starter. Can you talk me through when that happened and, and what that experience was like for you? Yeah, certainly. So a lot of people don't know this, but when I came into camp, my goal was not to be the starter. My goal was to uh, try to make try to make work with the depth charts so I can go on the plane in Cincinnati, which was our first game. So again, Coach West told us just you know play hard, learn learn as much as you can, practice hard, and that's all I did. And it just so happened that uh, he had some alignment go down to injury. Another lineman went down to a grade, and you know one day you know I we in a meeting, and uh, once the lineman went down to injury, Coach West said, "Well, get in there, freshman," and I stepped in doing a pass blocking drill, and and. Um, Next thing I know, I'm starting starting left tackle, even though that wasn't my goal. So that's actually really how it happened. It's just, you know, I worked hard and, you know, things happened. And the next thing I know, I'm starting left tackle. Like, I think it was like four days before that we took, took the plane to Cincinnati. And just like that, Corey Soule, who only days before hoped to get to travel to the game, he was now a member of a starting lineup of a team that had ambitions to beat every school on their schedule. But for his goals... He did get his flight booked. The thing is, his story, it was like a microcosm of the successes of that season, where there was a challenge that could have actually threatened the entire year, but someone rose to the occasion. Now, at this point in the story, the team would leave Covington, Louisiana, and that meant leaving the August heat that averaged around 93 degrees every day to head to Cincinnati, Ohio. In that moment, a team that was gaining swagger and confidence in their mission would have to stare down their first test in a campaign to go a perfect 12-0. You can't win them all if you don't win the first one. And that meant that the expectations and confidence that the team was gaining would be put to the test. This is where I'm going to end chapter two of the story, as the team is just days away from taking on the Cincinnati Bearcats in their opener of the season. Before I sign off, though, I want to thank the Tulane University marching band who performed the theme music for this episode. If you're not following them on Twitter, you need to. And you can find the band at Tulane U Band all one word. And might I add, they're a great follow during the football season and also during Mardi Gras. 
I also want to thank our audio producer for this chapter of the show, who is Alex of Astronomic Audio. We'll be back next week for Chapter 3, There Was Bad Blood. Thanks again for coming back, and this was The Perfect Wave.